Pastor Paul and uh, Peggy and his uh, family are on a, uh, a vacation this weekend. They have an annual family reunion with Peggy's side, so they're up in Jackson uh, this morning. And so I'm going to be preaching this morning. We're going to continue the series in, in the book of Acts. And you know what's nice about the book of Acts is that it's a story. It's a story so we can, we can follow it. It's easy to follow. We can see what the people saw. We can feel what the people felt. And we can picture ourselves in the story. And we can try to imagine what would have we done in their place. And so it's a story about the gospel going from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. It's about the fulfillment of God's promise to spread the gospel and to save people from all nations. Chapters 10 and 12 are a transition from Peter and the church in Jerusalem into Paul and his missionary uh, journeys. We're going to be looking at chapter 12. Um, we're, not going to, we're not even going to actually look at the passage for about 10 or 15 minutes here. We're going to do some background work first. So this is the last big story about the church that's in Jerusalem. And God wants us to know that he's still working there. He hasn't abandoned it. God's plan is to add to the church. It's not to neglect the ones that, we, that he already has. And so this story is also a story of Satan's kingdom battling against God's kingdom. And Satan is trying every way that he can to stop the spread of the gospel. But we're going to see God triumphing over and over despite the way things look. We're going to see God's unstoppable power this morning. So, to really feel the impact of what's happening, we have to look and see what has happened so far. We want to go back and take a peek at what happened. The church really kind of starts on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit visits them. And everyone starts to speak in different languages, and they're glorifying God. And so in Jerusalem at this time, there's people from all over, and they're hearing the gospel. They're hearing you know, the glory of God in their own language. And so they don't know what to make of it. And, so, and some people say, well, they must be drunk. That's all it is. And Peter stands up and says, it's 10 o'clock in the morning. These people aren't drunk. And so he starts to preach. And he preaches to them. And 3,000 people are added to the church that day. The Bible then says that they were baptized. And so I always like to have a picture of this. I want to see it. So I'm trying to picture what it looks like to baptize 3,000 people. (laughs) What can that even look like? I can't even get the picture of these number of these people being baptized. So the church is flourishing. They're devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of the bread. The apostles are doing miracles and they're doing signs. Can you imagine what it would be like to be around this time when they're doing these miracles? The Lord is adding to their numbers every single day those who are being saved. Peter and John go to the temple and there's a man who's lame. He can't walk. He hasn't been able to walk since the day he was born. And they heal this man. God's kingdom is growing daily. And Satan doesn't like it. So he begins to fight back. First of all, he stirs up the Jewish leaders and they arrest Peter and John and they lock them up and they keep them overnight. But when they go in to bring him in and talk to him, they can't argue with Peter at all. And they can't deny the fact that this guy who couldn't walk can now walk. And so they just rebuke him and they say, don't say it anymore. They threaten him and then they let him go. So Peter goes back to the believers, back to these people, and they pray together. And listen to this in their prayer. They say, Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel set themselves up against the Lord 
and his anointed one. So they see this as they're setting themselves up. And with that in mind, knowing that this opposition is here, they pray for more boldness to keep on preaching. God reigns and Satan is buffeted. Satan then tries an inside track. He tries something different. He goes to Ananias and Sapphira, and he gets them to listen to him. And he tempts them with greed. And Ananias and Sapphira cheat, and they lie. Listen to what Peter says to him. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So God deals with them right away. That story ends with more believers being added. Once again, this unstoppable power of God. Satan doesn't give up. He tries harder. Now he stirs up the Jewish leaders with jealousy. And they arrest Peter and the apostles and they throw him into prison. This is now the second time that Peter is in prison. An angel comes in the middle of the night, opens, it, opens up the door and lets him out. And the angel tells him to go back to the temple and to preach. They just got arrested for preaching. This was the reason that they're in prison is because they're preaching. And the angel is saying, go back, do it again, go back. And so they do. Once again, God triumphs. And so the Jewish leaders find out that they're doing that. They bring them back in and they beat them. They tell them to stop preaching the word. But Peter and the apostles leave and they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. Satan then goes further. He goes further into the church. And he's again trying to throw down the church. He's trying to defeat God and his people by causing dissatisfaction, by causing grumbling about the widows not getting fed. But the apostles handle it well, and they then commit themselves to further prayer and to ministry of the word. And the numbers begin to grow and grow, or they continue to grow and grow. Remember in the Old Testament... The story of Job, when Satan goes before Job and he accuses, or he goes before God and he accuses Job, and says, look, he only worships you because of all the stuff that you gave him, basically. You're protecting him, you gave him all this stuff. You take that stuff away and he's going to curse you. So God tells Satan, you can do whatever you want, just don't hurt him. And so Satan does. Satan takes his land, takes his money, kills his children, and Job doesn't curse God. Instead, he blesses God. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground, but he worshiped God. He said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He grieved, but his faith wasn't shaken. That's not enough for Satan, though, because he didn't see defeat. So he goes back to God. He says, look, the only reason why he did that, the only reason why he still worships you is because you haven't taken away his health. You take away that, and I guarantee he's going to curse you. This is what Satan does. So God allows Satan to take away his health. And Satan afflicts him mightily. And he suffers painfully. And that's what we have the rest of the book of Job, is when Job struggles with this. And in that part of the book, Job says this, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that sat a man is conceived. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. This is what he went through. This was the intensity of the attack that he had. This was a trial that cut to the bone in Job's life. And in this story, in Acts that we go on, in a way, this is what Satan is now going to do 
to the church. Satan's attack is directed fully on what will hurt the church the most. The attack is powerful. It is personal. It cuts to the bone. Its intent is to bring enough force and enough pain that the church cannot stand. They killed Stephen. And on that day there arose a great persecution against the church. And the church, the persecution is so hard that they're scattered. They leave Jerusalem. It is so bad they all leave Jerusalem except for the apostles, the only ones who are there. Saul ravages the church. He goes from house into house. He drags them off to prison. He takes men. He takes some women. He takes them all. It appears that Satan has won. The church has been scattered. There's just a few apostles that are left in Jerusalem. But you know what the people do who are scattered? They preach the word. And so now Satan, instead of defeating this church, or at least containing it to one small manageable place, his work has caused it to spread out. His very actions lead to God's kingdom expanding. What he meant for evil, God meant for good. But Satan, we know, doesn't stop, does he? He's relentless. He's always chipping away. Peter says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Saul keeps on persecuting. He keeps on breathing out murderous threats. He goes to the Pharisees and he, or the high priests and he gets papers that allow him to go in, into these lands where these people have scattered and bring them back and bring them into, into prison. But God stops Saul in his tracks and he miraculously saves him. He becomes Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. God triumphs again. He is unstoppable. As we look back at this point, we look back at this story from where we are now, and we know the beginning of it, and we know the middle of it, and we know the end of it, so we know that all of these things that happen end up happening for God's good and for God's glory. But the people in Jerusalem couldn't see that. They were in the middle of this. And I'm sure that they're asking questions like, why is evil triumphing? Why are the people in prison? Why are they being killed? Why do we lose our jobs and our homes, our parents and our children? Just stop and think about it. What would it be like to be there, to be in Jerusalem during that time? To have your friends and your family scattered because of the persecution? What would it be like to fear for your life, to wake up in the middle of the night and have to leave just to save yourself, to save your children? Would you ever see your friends again? Would they ever find you at all if you had to leave? What about those ones who stayed in Jerusalem? What was it like for them? And what was it like for the people who became Christians after them? They've seen all this stuff that's happened. They've seen these people hunted down and put into prison, the ones that went before you, before them. Life for them would have been stressful. They would have relied on God, but they would have always been on the lookout, looking out over their shoulder. So just when things look like they can't get worse for the church in Jerusalem, it does. So let's look at it. This is where we're going to pick up today. It's Acts chapter 12, and we're going to break it down into small pieces. Let's look at verses 1 through 5, first of all. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 5 says this. It says, About that time Herod the king 
laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Herod has now become the prime tool for Satan's attack. He lays these violent hands on the ones who belong to the church, and then he turns his eye on James. You know what James' nickname was? Does anyone know what his nickname was? What's that? Oh, <laughs> old Camelies? I haven't heard that one. Um, his, uh, in the Bible, Jesus calls him and his brother, James and John, the son of thunder. So I'm not sure. I haven't heard the Camelies one, but I know they call them the, the sons of thunder. This is James and John. Can you imagine how loud and how old he must have preached, preached Christ's resurrection, his death and resurrection? Let me get this right. Death happened first, then resurrection. So, <laughs> but just think about it. His name is the Son of Thunder, right? You don't get a nickname Son of Thunder for no reason at all. You have to be bold. You have to be boisterous. You have to be vocal. And so his enemies must have hated him for, for this. So Herod kills James. James was the disciple of Jesus. Peter, James, and John were the three that were the closest to Jesus. These were the ones that he took with him on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration. These were the ones that he has to come with when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane to stay with him and to pray. Jesus had once asked James if he thought that he could drink the cup from which he drank. And James said, yes. Now the time has come. James had drank the cup and he was martyred for Christ. James, one of the leaders, an apostle, he was the one who walked with Jesus and now he's dead. He's killed by Herod. Can you imagine the impact that this would have had on the church? Just imagine the impact of who this person is that they've just killed. The Jewish leaders are ecstatic. They let Herod know how happy they are. So Herod arrests Peter. And he throws him in prison. He's just waiting to kill him until after the Passover. So these people can't wait for the Passover. And probably even more so, they couldn't wait till after the Passover. Because now Peter, their biggest nemesis, their thorn in their side, is going to be killed and removed forever. And so I'm sure that they were thinking, finally, this will all go away. It'll just be gone. And they'll just forget all about Jesus and all this stuff that happened. We'll all just go back to normal. This situation looks dark for this church in Jerusalem. What hope is left for them? The believers have been scattered. The church is now being rebuilt. But their leaders are, are being killed or being put into prison. What can they do? What can this little church, this little band of people do against Herod and against Rome and against this Jewish oppression? They're powerless. If they killed the disciples, what about them? Have you ever felt this way? Have the odds ever seemed so stacked against you? Does it ever seem like God isn't there? I'm sure some of them there must have looked around and said, where is 
Where is God in all of this? What do you do when it looks like God isn't there? Or it seems like things happen that make no sense whatsoever. It seems like God isn't even watching, let alone intervening in the situation at all. What do you do then? You do exactly what the church in Jerusalem did, and that was to pray. Verse 5 says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They did what God's children always do. They prayed to God for help. The helpless cry for help. And not only did they pray, but they prayed earnestly. It wasn't just a token prayer. It wasn't an unfelt, just throwaway prayer that you just say. But it was an earnest, heartfelt, real prayer to God. It was a cry to God. It was a prayer that says, God, you are the only one. To who else would I turn to? If you don't help us, all is lost. It's the prayer of faith. It's the one who throws themselves at the foot of God and says, God, I don't see. I don't understand. It makes no sense to me, but I trust you. I know that you are God and that you are in control. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And this is the faith that we want. But you know what happens? Satan doesn't want us to have that. Satan never gives up. One of the biggest tools that Satan uses is discouragement. Even in Psalm 143, David says this. He says, For my enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirits faint within me. My heart within is appalled. The Puritan William Bridges says this about discouragement. He says, The more man is discouraged under his afflictions, the less he is able to bear them. So long as a man has skin upon it, he's able to put it into the sharpest vinegar without smarting. But if the skin is be off, he means like a cut or a rash, but if the skin be off, it smarts exceedingly, and he can hardly bear it. So long as a man's bones are knit together and in joint, he may stand under a great burden. But if the shoulder bone be out of joint, who can bear a burden? And what do all of our discouragements do but disjoint the soul and put the spirit on the rack? This is this tool that Satan uses, this discouragement during these times. So listen to what William Bridges says is the cure. He says, Though a man's afflictions be never so great, yet if he be in Christ, and he's made his peace with God, he has no reason to be cast down and discouraged, whatever his affliction be. For, says our Savior, in the world you will have trouble. But be of good comfort, I have overcome the world. Look to Christ who has overcome the world. He is the perfecter of our faith. And we need to pray for each other. Calvin says the faithful did not neglect their duty. Peter alone was in the front line, but all the rest fought with him by their prayers and helped him as much as they could. And even this morning, uh, Elizabeth's testimony of God's greatness with her brother on the front line and us praying for him here and the protection that he got. So the bullets went into the flat jacket, but they didn't get him. The other bullet bounced off his binocular, and he was saved. God's just amazing grace 
in that. But let's look into the prison. Let's see what's going on there. Let's look forward to God answering these earnest prayers that they were putting out. Let's look to this unstoppable power. We're going to look at verses 6, 11, 6 through 11 now. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And the sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold... An angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, and he woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to himself, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around and follow me. And he went out, and he followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first... And the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them in its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel led him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Isn't that amazing? Just these things that have happened. Peter's bound with two chains to the guards, one on either side. Two more watching him at the door. The chains slip off. He walks out with the angels. When looking at this and all the different things that went through with the chains falling off, going through the guards, the light only that just shown right there, um, uh, walking out, Calvin looks at this and he sees God's glory in this deliverance. He says God could have carried Peter away instantaneously. But he overcame various difficulties, one after another, to increase the glory of the miracle. It wasn't just one miracle. It was several miracles. And Matthew Poole looks at that same thing where Calvin sees his God's glory. Matthew Poole looks and he sees our dependence on God at that same time. And he says it's good for Peter and for us to be convinced that we stand every moment in need of God's conduct and his deliverance. One of the things that's most amazing about this scene as I, as I look at this and, you know, read it is the fact that he's sleeping. You ever thought about that? He's going to be killed in the morning. It's just a few hours from now he's going to be killed. And he knows it. He's seen Peter just die. Everyone's so excited. They, they arrested him. They're going to kill him too. What would you do if you were in his situation? Because I can just picture, you know, standing up by the bars and just shaking them all night. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. But Peter's in there sleeping. He just sleeps. God gives him this peace. This is the sleep of faith. In First Peter, he says this. He says, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. As holy. This seemed like if any situation where you should fear or be troubled, this was it. But he wasn't. He didn't fear. And he wasn't troubled. In his heart, he honored Christ the Lord as holy. If you want that peace, don't fear those who can only destroy the body. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So Peter finally comes awake. He's walking down the street. He realizes what happened. He realizes the unstoppable power of God. And he gives the glory to God. 
Can you imagine what his joy was like as he's walking down the street in the middle of the night? His joy must have been unbelievable. What would you have felt if that was you? You had just escaped death. You had just escaped prison, and now you're out. What would have you said as you're walking along praying to God? What thoughts would have went through your, through your mind? Peter goes next to the people who are praying for him. And so let's look at that. Let's see how they react to this miracle, to this answered prayer. Verses 12 through 17. It says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in. And she reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and he went to another place. I just love Rhoda. Don't you just love Rhoda? Can't you just put a face to this girl? She's so happy. Peter's there. She obviously really liked Peter, probably just as a person. And uh, Peter's there. She's just so excited. She, she's so excited. She doesn't even open up the door. She just keeps runs up. And she says, Peter's here. Peter's here. Peter's here. And you can just picture her giggling and screaming, you know, Peter's here. Peter's here. And uh, they don't believe her. But Peter's outside, outside the gate. So what do you think Peter's thinking? <laughs> like, hello, hello. <laughs> I know someone's in there. I can hear the giggling. I can hear the screaming. I can hear the laughter. I know someone's there. But think about Peter's situation being out on the street and picture what that was like for Peter to be there. I'm sure he was worried about the guards finding him, right? The guards are supposed to kill him in the morning. Or maybe not the guards kill him, but he's supposed to be killed in the morning. These guards are in charge of watching him. And the way it worked back then was that if you were a guard and you had a prison and the prisoner escaped, you took their penalty no matter what it was. So these guards, they're looking at death in the morning if they don't find Peter tonight. And so if these if they're not all over the streets now, they're going to be all over the streets in just a matter of minutes. And this is why when Peter finally goes in, he says be quiet. Not so loud. And that's how come it says he left right away. He was no longer safe in Jerusalem. But before he leaves, right, because he doesn't come out knowing that these guards are going to be after him, knowing that the streets are full, and he doesn't go out to where he's going to go, his right destination. He has to stop. And he has to tell these people what an amazing thing that God did. So on his way out of town, he stops in. He had to tell someone. He couldn't hold it in. In the words of Matthew Poole, the fire was kindled in him, and he had to stop by, and he had to tell him of this gloriness of God, this unstoppable God that we serve. So let's look at the reaction real quick, right? Because doesn't that seem kind of like an odd reaction? You know, they don't believe Rhoda. And what about this whole angel thing? It must be his angel. So first of all, we'll look at the angel. There was two common beliefs back then. One was that um, the righteous would become like angels after their death. So maybe they thought that he was dead and that was his angel. The other one was that they thought someone had a specific guardian angel assigned to them and they could take the shape 
of the person if they needed to. So these were what they believed. There was no biblical evidence for this. This is just what they thought it could be. So this reaction to Peter and Peter's escape seems surprising to everybody. Clearly they weren't expecting him to show up at that door. They weren't expecting him to just show up and to be escaped. It could really be one of two different things. The first thing that it could be was their prayers weren't primarily for him to be rescued. They might not have been praying for his escape. They, have been, they may have been praying that he would die giving God glory as a martyr. They may have prayed that his faith would not fail him at this crucial hour. How easy would it be for your faith to fail when you're looking at death? And they may have prayed to strengthen his faith. Certainly Peter would have taught him this. Certainly he would have prepared him for suffering. Stephen had been killed. Saul had been breathing out threats and murder. They were seeing this all around him. At any time they could have been caught. The danger was always there. So certainly Peter would have prepared them for this. And we can look at the, at the, at the letter he wrote, First Peter, and we can see um, how much he speaks about suffering. That whole, we see over and over in that book, we're suffering unjustly, suffering unjustly, whether it's a boss or, or, or um, authorities, those in leadership, the, you know, the kings and everything like that, whether you're suffering unjustly. And so we see this over and over and over. So Peter would have taught this. We can also think of Peter's second imprisonment, right? When he gets let out, it says, after they beat him they let, and let him go, it said they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Christ. This is what Peter was teaching. This is, what, this is the essence of, of so much of his teaching. We can also look at the book of Philippians. When Paul himself was in prison, he writes, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So this could have been the essence of the prayer. It was certainly part of the prayer. The other part of the prayer could have been that he was released. And this could have been the second part of their reaction. They may have been shocked that God answered their prayers. They just might have been shocked. Maybe we can relate more to this. Here's a group, right? They're meeting in the middle of the night in someone's house. Certainly they have faith. The danger around them is incredible. And if they find them all meeting together at one place, they risk everything. So they have faith. But their faith may have been mixed with doubt as well. Notice, too, how when Peter leaves, he says, tell James and the brothers. James and the brothers are the leaders of the church. But they're not in this house because he would have told them himself. Now, they might not have been there because Herod had already killed uh, James and put Peter in prison, so he may have been cautious. They may have been protecting the people. But as you think about it, as this church grows and grows and grows and grows and grows, they all can't fit into one house. Only some can fit into one house. So this is just me now. This isn't biblical or anything like this. But I picture this as a care group. (laughs) 
I always look at this and I'm like, oh, they must be in their care group right now. They're having the prayer meeting at their care group and stuff. And maybe that's just because I'm a prayer group leader. Again, it's not, in the, it's not anywhere in there. But this is what I picture. As a care group leader, my prayers are often mixed with faith and with doubt. In fact, I would probably say mostly there's that mixture of doubt that's in there. And we pray with that mixture of faith and doubt. And we do have faith. There's no question about it. We have faith. And we believe that God hears our prayers. But we don't always think He's going to answer them. Maybe He answers the prayers of other people's, but He doesn't always answer our prayer. There's some people who seem to be prayer warriors. And it seems like God is always answering their prayers. My mom and dad are like that. And whenever I have a big prayer, when I say, I really, really need to pray about this, I call my mom. I call my dad. And I say, can you pray for this? Can you pray? Because I have more faith in their prayers than I have in my prayers. So that that mixture is there. That mixture of faith and doubt is there. And we doubt either the strength of our faith or we doubt the love of God and that he will answer these prayers. But God wouldn't have saved us if he didn't love us. Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross if he didn't love us. And our faith doesn't have to be huge. He tells us if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed. So, even though we may have little faith, and even though our faith is mixed with doubting, we see in this passage that God still listens. There was doubt mixed with the prayers, and yet God still answers these prayers. And there's great comfort to be found there. God is not an overbearing, ununderstanding God who's ready to deny us at any time if he finds any kind of a loophole in our prayer or in our Bible study or in our witnessing or anything at all. That's not what he is. He still loves us. He listens to us. He answers our prayers, even if there is doubt that's mixed in it. You know, we're never going to have a pure faith without doubt until we see him face to face. And then we don't need faith at that point because we will see him face to face. So if your faith is mixed with doubts, take comfort here. God loves us with our little doubting faith. The band can come up now as we look at this last section here. We're going to see what happened to Herod. We're going to look at what happened to this great enemy of God's people, this tool of Satan who set himself up against God because we want to know what the outcome is going to be. So let's look at these last few verses in Acts. He says, Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Peter searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea and Caesarea and spent some time there. Now Herod was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
And on an appointed day, Herod put on royal robes. He took his seat upon the throne, and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, and he breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And then this transition where it increases and multiplies is going to be through Paul. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This chapter begins with Herod persecuting the church. He lays violent hands on the people of the church. He kills James. He throws Peter in prison. He's intending to kill him. And in the end, he himself is judged by God. And he himself is killed. God's judgment is the outcome for those who set themselves up against him. But did you notice verse 24? But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the unstoppable power of God. His word goes forth no matter what. No matter what Satan has thrown God's way, no matter who Satan has thrown God's way, no matter what Satan has tried to do to God's church and to God's people, God is unstoppable. Stoppable. John Scott says this, The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. What's so comforting about the book of Acts as the whole, this entire story shows that God is in control and that God keeps his promises. He said that the word would go forth. He said at the beginning of Acts, and no matter what has happened, he keeps this promise. This is so comforting because he has given us promises as well. He said that if he started a good work in us, he will finish it. He said that he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He said that nothing can separate us from his love. And if he said it, he has the power and the will and the love to do it. God is unstoppable. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And we look at you as an almighty, unstoppable God. If Satan has thrown this much stuff against your church, Lord, starting with something small and working all the way up to killing to killing the disciples, the leaders, those people who walked with you, those ones who were the closest to you here on earth. If he throws all this stuff and he is powerless, Lord, then you are truly almighty and glorious. And you are the God who saves us. And You are the God who loves us even with little faith. Even with faith that is full of doubt. You love us. You save us. You answer our prayers. And we thank You, Lord. 
we thank you, the unstoppable God. Amen. Let's stand as we celebrate the kingdom of God.